Well, have you ever felt like a loser? Um, I mean, have you ever gotten up and looked in the mirror and just sort of stood there in front of the mirror and said, really? Is, is this who I am? Uh, is this really me? Or, or have you ever just laid in bed? Maybe you didn't even make it to the mirror. Uh, you just laid in bed and it was easier to keep hitting the snooze and getting fitful uh, sleep of nine-minute increments than to actually get out of bed and, and face uh, what the day holds. Um, you know, I'm really thankful that none of those things describe me. And uh, because, you know, thankfully, once you're a pastor, you're, you have everything together in your life. So, I mean, I, I've heard that some people have those kinds of things. Um, I, I don't know uh, what that's like. Um, sometimes you'll have to tell me. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. Uh, that's a joke, by the way. I feel that way. Um, those are experiences from my life. Um, and it hasn't always been uh, even, you know, those, that's, that's last week. Um, but this is uh, started even earlier, you know, because it hasn't always been easy to feel like the cool kid. Um, you know, when I was growing up uh, from uh, kindergarten through high school, um, I was homeschooled. And uh, today, you know, homeschooling or even unschooling um, can kind of be seen as the kind of the cool, progressive, avant-garde thing to do with education. But back in kind of the late 1980s when we were doing it, um, it was actually pretty weird. And people um, either, that was the best reaction. Wow, that's kind of weird. Um, at worst, people thought, are you in some kind of like a religious cult? Or, you know, why are you not going to school? What's going on um, here? And so, you know, I grew up definitely knowing at sometimes what it felt like to be a loser or to feel like an outsider. You know, but even if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I don't, I haven't really felt like a loser. I don't, I don't feel like a loser. Um, well, you still might actually be a loser if you, if you feel like a winner. Um, and I, I think the despair.com poster that I have here kind of says it all. Uh, it says winners, uh, because nothing says you're a loser like owning a motivational poster about being a winner. So, um, even if you feel like a winner this morning, I, I don't know, you know, just, just keep that in mind. Um, but good news, God loves losers. And this book that we look at every single week is filled with losers. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in the introduction to actually her children's Bible. She says, some people think that the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes and sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and sometimes they are downright mean. And as we've seen this already in our reading through the Bible through Open Here, I and mean, we've seen these characters who are deeply flawed, who are losers, and we see it here in Joshua chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, if you haven't turned there already, I um, would invite you either on your phone or there's some Bibles in the pews to turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua is the sixth book in the Bible. So if you go to the very beginning, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. So it's sixth from the beginning. And uh, as we look at Joshua chapter 2, we see that in this chapter, everyone is looking for something. The spies are looking in Jericho for some weaknesses that they could exploit as they invade the city. Rahab is looking for a way to escape the coming invasion of her city. But as we look at this text, we need to ask the question, what is God looking for? What is he looking for in this text? And this morning, as we look at Joshua chapter 2, we're going to see that God looks for desperate people, that he looks for desperate faith, and that he looks for any opportunity to show mercy. So that's going to kind of be our flow for this morning. We're going to see that God looks for desperate people. 
He looks for desperate faith, and he looks for any opportunity to show mercy. So as we look at this passage, the first thing we see is that God looks for desperate people. And you see this in verse 1, in Joshua 2.1. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And in a moment, we're going to see that Rahab was in a desperate situation for multiple reasons. But first we see that the nation of Israel is in a desperate situation also. I mean, Israel is in a precarious position. They're standing on the edge of the promised land for the second time. They've been here before. And last time, it didn't go so well. They didn't end up following through. They didn't enter the land. They didn't obey God. I almost wonder if this is why Joshua sends out the spies secretly this time, so that if they do bring back a bad report, no one really knew that they had given that bad report. You mean last time they sent out these 10 spies, they came back and gave this big report. I almost wonder if Joshua says, I'm just going to send two. I'm going to do it kind of under the radar. That way, if it, if it goes badly, there's not a lot of damage control I have to do. I just have to keep these two guys quiet. Um, and now they are facing Jericho. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're facing Jericho. Jericho is this fortress city-state that stood between them and the promised land. And like St. Louis was the gateway to the west, Jericho was the gateway to the west of the Jordan River, to this promised land. And actually, I have a map. You can kind of see on a map here where they're at Shittim there and then Jericho. So they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River and go into um, the, the, uh, the promised land. That is the route that the spies took on their on their journey. Jordan or Jericho is the gateway to the promised land. And so as the spies approach this, they arrive at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And this is probably more of like an inn or a cantina that offered sort of a few additional services on the side for those who wanted them rather than this just being like a full-on brothel. But this is the sort of place that would be a logical place to go if you wanted to find out what was going on. It would be a place you could slide in kind of unnoticed, um, where people would kind of keep your identity secret, but you could sort of find out what was happening in the city. Now, it's important to note that the narrator carefully avoids implying or suggesting any kind of sexual interaction between Rahab and the spies, but that they are there in this kind of seedy place to try to figure out what's happening in the city. Now, if the nation of Israel is in a desperate situation, Rahab is in a really desperate situation. First of all, Rahab is a woman, which in the ancient Near Eastern culture meant that she was already at a profound disadvantage. And this means she was basically a second-class citizen. And second, she isn't just a woman. She's also a prostitute, so she's the lowest of the low. Um, she had not followed probably the path that her parents had hoped for her of, of getting married and, and settling down. She's a prostitute. And something happened along the way. We don't know Rahab's story, but somewhere between being a little girl and meeting these spies in her inn, something had gone wrong. I mean, no little girl dreams of growing up to be a prostitute, and yet here she is. She's running an inn and providing extras for those patrons who are willing to pay a premium. But what makes Rahab's situation truly desperate isn't that she's a woman or, or even that she's a prostitute. What makes her situation truly desperate is that she is a Canaanite, living in a Canaanite city that is destined to be completely destroyed by God, along with all of its inhabitants. And when we read the book of Joshua, when we read the Old Testament, 
as modern Western readers, this is one of the most difficult things, I think, for us to grasp. Why would God order the wholesale slaughter of the entire Canaanite population to allow for his own people to occupy the land? I mean, how could God call his people to do this? And this is something when I read these texts, I'm like, wow, what is going on here? It's a legitimate question. What is going on? So I want to take a moment in our service today just to think a little bit about this and to think well about what God is calling his people to do in the conquest of Canaan. We need to think first about who the Canaanites were, who God is, and then, and then who we are. So this is going to be a little framework for us, who the Canaanites were, who uh, God is, and then, and then who we are. So first we need to know who the Canaanites and the Israelites were. The Canaanites were a people who worshipped a pantheon of gods that gloried in bloodshed and violence. This was a people who burned their children alive as sacrifices to the gods. They practiced incest and temple prostitution. These were all atrocities that were incredibly oppressive and exploitative, exploitative to the very weakest in their society. And they weren't necessarily the worst or the most brutal of the people in the ancient Near East. Um, But as one scholar put it, the land of Canaan was no paradise before the Israelites got there. Um, That was from uh, this book by uh, Paul Coppin um, called As God a Moral Monster. And actually, if if you're interested in going deeper into this, I would really recommend this book. It's very helpful, um, Paul's thinking on this. But we must remember that this isn't a snap decision on God's part that God waited nearly 600 years to judge the Canaanites. We read way back in Genesis that this is a people who is turned away from God, that they are utterly uh, headed away from him with no sense of ever turning to him. But he says, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait. And now 600 years later, he's ready uh, to judge them. He's finally had enough. Um, And what's also important to remember here is that God will do the same thing to his own people later on. Once they enter the land and they begin to turn away from him, he will send a nation that judges Israel in the same way. And this is important because what's taking place here isn't sort of a genocide or ethnic cleansing. Some people try to frame it along those lines. That's not what's happening here. God is not judging ethnicity. He's judging sin. You see, God's purpose from the very beginning was for Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. And God is constantly providing a way for those who are not Israelites, who are not a part of Israel, to come into his people. So this isn't a case of genocide. It's not a case of ethnic cleansing. It's rather God's judgment on sin. He's not judging their race. He's not judging their language, their ethnicity. He's judging the fact that they have turned away from him, that they have oppressed and exploited people whom he loves. And again, God judges his own people in this way later on. So now you say, well, wait a second. Okay, so it isn't based on ethnicity, but isn't it based on religion? Isn't just one religion sort of oppressing another religion? And, and of course, at one level, it's like, well, well, yes. I mean, you have the one true God saying that these are false gods. But we got to remember in the ancient Near East, there was no such thing as, as a war that wasn't a holy war, that wasn't a war of religion, because there was no secular states. There was no um, sort of... Uh, anti-religious or or non-religious. Everyone was wrapped up in in who they were and the identity of their gods in every war, whether it was between Israel or other nations between themselves. It was always a war between the gods. It was never just about the people. So every war in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East was a sense of a holy war of the gods warring against one another. And so this command to completely destroy the entire population of the city was only given for this moment. And I think we have to remember this. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, there are two sets of rules of engagement for Israel when they would go to war. One set of rules engages 
every normal kind of con context when they would go to fight. And it includes lots of opportunities to show mercy, to give warning to the city, all this kind of thing. Only in this one instance where God is using the nation of Israel to judge the Canaanites are these harsh rules put in place. It's a one-off thing. It's not certainly sets any precedent for us today or even for the Israelites in their other conquests later on. So we also must consider who God is. God is a good God who is full of love and mercy, but he is also a God who does not let the guilty go unpunished. He is a God of justice, and God can, must, and he does judge evil. You see, God's wrath his judgment is his settled opposition to the cancer that is destroying his good creation. And he judges the Canaanites, but he also judges his own people. He is bound to stop what is destroying the good world that he has made. And God employs a variety of means to enact his justice and judgment. Sometimes he intervenes directly. Other times he uses natural events like the plagues back in Egypt. And sometimes he uses nations to judge other nations. So here he's using Israel to judge the Canaanites, but later he's going to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge Israel. And we also need to keep in mind, finally, that our cultural location affects how we read these texts as well. When we look at this, it's revolting to us but we have to remember that the morals taught in this book, whether we know it or not, have been so ingrained within us that the reason we actually revolt against what God is doing here is because of the ethic of the gospel in the New Testament. Um, and, and in other cultures where Christianity has not made the same kind of impact that it has in the West, sort of ancient tribalism, parts of Asia, the Middle East, they have no problem um, with God judging people or God using people to judge other people. But the reason that we struggle with this book is because of this book. So if you're going to throw out this book because of the death of so many, you also have to throw out the reason why you are revolted at the death of so many. You see, only this book teaches us to place such a high value on human life, which is why God judges the Canaanites, because they have debased human life. Now, I don't like this any more than you do, um, but God will judge who he wants to judge and how he wants to. So Rahab is in a desperate situation. She's a woman, she's a prostitute, and she's a Canaanite. And she deserves death. And she's desperate. But the good news is God looks for desperate people. You see, whether we want to believe it or not, Rahab, like the Canaanites, we also deserve death. I mean, look around. We also worship gods, the gods of prestige, of money, of sex. The Bible calls this spiritual prostitution, spiritual adultery. And because of sin, we probably have a lot more in common with Rahab than we would like to admit. And Rahab and the spies, for that matter, they are in a desperate situation. But the good news is that God looks for desperate people. The question for us is, how desperate are we? How desperate are you? How desperate? They are in a desperate situation. But God always looks for those kinds of people. In the Gospels, Jesus is always looking at the outsider. He's always looking for the loser. He's always hanging out with those who are most desperate, who are most needy. 
those are the ones that Jesus pays attention to. Those who think they have it all together, those are the ones who draw his sharpest criticism. So how desperate are we? Second, God looks for desperate faith. And what matters most in faith is not how much of it you have or how strong it is, but rather what is your faith in. You see, God looks at the object of our faith, not the quality or the quantity of it. God looks at the object of our faith. He looks at what we're trusting in, not necessarily the object or the quantity of it. And that's what I love about this story. So the spies are at Rahab's house, and and word gets out that they are there. So it's like, this is the thing that amazes me about these spies. I mean, they've been in Jericho for like 15 minutes, and already the king is sending men after them. So apparently these guys weren't exactly James Bond and, and Jason Bourne. I mean, they must not have been that great as spies, because they're only there for like, 20 minutes, and the, the king is already sending guards in after them into, into, this, uh, into this inn, this place where Rahab is doing her, uh, her work. And so they come running in, homeland security from Jericho busts in. They're looking for these spies. And what does she do? What does she do? She hides the spies, which is kind of the opposite of what you would expect. I mean, Do you see how shocking this is? I mean, Rahab is terrified that the Israelite army is going to kill her, and now she's saving her enemies, and she lies to her own countrymen. And and now her life is really on the line. You see, if the Canaanites find out that she lied, she's dead. And if the Israelites win this fast-approaching battle, she's also dead. She's in a really desperate situation. And what she does, she throws herself on the mercy of the God of Israel. She knows that destruction is coming for the Canaanites, But their destruction is not inevitable. None of them had to die. And Rahab chooses life. So when the coast is clear, she tells the spies. This is Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of it, as soon as we heard what God had done here in Canaan, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit, there was no courage left in anyone because of you. For Yahweh, the Lord your God, he is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And this is what the spies say. And then the men said to her, our life for yours even to death and even if you, if you do not tell this business of ours, then the Lord gives us this land. We will deal kindly with you and faithfully with you. You see, like us, Rahab had never witnessed these miracles. I mean, I don't think most of us here would say that we had witnessed the, the, any of miracles, probably. Um, Rahab hadn't seen the crossing in the Red Sea. She hadn't seen God defeat these armies, but she had heard about it. She had heard about it. She had heard rumors of an incredible God. And that's what we have too. We have rumors of what God has done in his word. And now both the soldiers looking for the spies and Rahab who hid them, they had heard these same rumors. They were both terrified. The soldiers 
were going to try to save them how, themselves, but Rahab begs someone else to save her. She knows that without rescue, she will perish. So in a split second, she changes her allegiance. The Baals, the gods of the Canaanites, the whole pantheon of these bloodthirsty gods, she recognizes they could not save her. She knew that they couldn't save her. Their armies couldn't save her. The walls, the fortress could not save her. And she, in her desperation, does what people who are desperate do best. She begs for mercy. And as we look at Rahab, her faith is messy. Um, sure, we could debate about whether it was right for her to lie. You know, whether, you know, was, this, was she commended for lying? Is this the right thing for her to do? I, who knows? Her faith is messy. She's at the very beginning of her journey with God. But what gives me hope is that God meets her where she is at. And as she is commended later on in the Bible, it, her lying is never commended, but what is commended is her faith. She expresses faith in the one true God, and he meets her where she's at. You see, if the object of our faith is what matters, not the quality or the quantity, then Rahab has done the right thing. She's put her faith in the right person. She has a lot to learn, but she believes in the right person, and she's rescued. So this makes us ask this morning, what do you think will rescue me? Is it your good works that you think will rescue you? Your status? Your church attendance? I know sometimes what I think will rescue me is that, you know, I've always thought this way since I was a kid. It's kind of, maybe God has some kind of statute of limitations. And if, and if I can just sort of keep my nose clean enough for long enough that, that sort of these old things that I've done wrong will sort of expire and then he'll just sort of look at the, you know, it's like a credit report. After seven years, the, you know, the bad stuff drops off. You know, if I can just have good credit for seven years, uh, then, then God will look at me. What are we looking at to rescue us? You know, we are always, our default setting is always to try and earn, to get something from God by doing something for him. That, that if we say, that, you know, Lord, if I do blank, then, then you, surely you will do this for me. So who or what do you think will rescue you? Some of us, when we come to God, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, we feel like we need to clean ourselves up. It's like you have a, if you have a maid come to your house, sometimes you feel like, oh, okay, I gotta, well, I've got to clean up the house for the housekeeper to come. We've got to tidy up the house so that the person can come and clean it. We depend on ourselves to make ourselves acceptable when free acceptance is offered to us. I love the verse in the hymn, Come You Sinners. It goes like this. It says, Come you weary, heavy laden, Lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. Those last two lines always just hit me in the heart. If you wait until you're better, if you try to wait until you've fixed yourself, you're never going to come. You will never come at all. It's clear with Rahab, God meets us where we are. So this morning, if you don't feel good enough, you don't feel smart enough, if you don't feel like your faith is strong enough, if you haven't lived a good life, the gospel is for you. That's who the gospel is for, for people who know they're not good enough. Who know they're not good enough. You see, the moment you think you can do it, that is the moment you end up like the Canaanites. You see, it's not how amazing or not your faith is, it's who your faith is in. I love Tim Keller has a great picture of this. this. He writes, um, imagine you're falling off a cliff 
And sticking out of the cliff is a branch that's strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong the branch is. But as you're falling, you have just enough time to reach out and grab the branch. How much faith do you have in a branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to reach out and grab it. And that's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. You see, it doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is that the branch is strong enough to hold you. And the branch is Jesus. So what do you think will rescue you? If God can rescue Rahab, he can rescue you. Her faith is messy, but in the New Testament, in Hebrews and in James, her faith is highlighted right up there with Abraham. And I can tell you how much this gives me hope. Because oftentimes I feel like my faith is so weak. And yes, I'm growing, and, but there's times when I really struggle as well. But if there is hope for Rahab, then maybe there's hope for you. Maybe there's hope for me. And finally, God looks for any chance to show mercy. He looks for any chance to show mercy. Rahab the harlot and the rest of her entire family are rescued. The whole nation is about to be devoted to destruction. The pagan Canaanites, they are the worst of the worst. But God looks for any chance to show mercy. He is just. He will judge. But with God, mercy triumphs over justice. That's what James says in the New Testament. In James chapter 2.13, he says that mercy triumphs over justice. So don't think for a moment that God isn't angry about your sin, but he longs to show mercy. He longs to forgive. He longs to give life. And I know this because when you look at Rahab's story, if you follow her story through the rest of this book, she ends up in some pretty amazing places. Do you know that Rahab ends up as the great, great, great grandmother of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history? This prostitute, her DNA is in David. You see, when God shows mercy, he shows it abundantly. But the question is, will we receive it? Will you receive it? All Rahab had to do was gather her family into a room and dangle a cord out of her window and wait for Yahweh to rescue her. And all that we have to do is believe. In believing, we reject our sins and ask for forgiveness, and God gives us life. So maybe you feel like, I don't have that much faith this morning. Maybe you feel like my life is a complete mess. And maybe your motivations aren't even necessarily the best. You don't even understand exactly why you're here this morning. And maybe there's a lot about what a life with God would even mean. And yet, like Rahab, you know you're desperate. You know you are in need. The question is, will you receive the mercy that God offers. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, yes, I have received that mercy. And perhaps you identify with Rahab. You have given your life to the one true God. But do you live it out? Do you celebrate the rescue of others? Do you offer the same mercy that you have received to others around you? Do you still remember constantly how desperate you are? You see, God loves losers. 
This book, the Bible, it is a book about losers. And probably the biggest loser of all in the Bible, at least from a human perspective, is Jesus, right? I mean, he's born to this poverty-stricken, unwed girl from backwater Nazareth, where the line is, you know, who can, what, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's rejected by his people. He's betrayed by his friends. I mean, he's abandoned by them. He's denied by them. And then he dies the lowest death, the death reserved for the very worst people. What a loser. You know, and Jesus actually, in his life, he even hung out with prostitutes all the time. But this shouldn't really surprise us, right? Because he has the blood of a prostitute in him. If you look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you see that Jesus is a descendant of Rahab. Rahab is one of only four women listed in Jesus' genealogy. You see, Jesus, our Savior, our God, he has the DNA of a Canaanite call girl. I love that about Jesus. God looks for desperate people. He looks for desperate faith. We have a God who loves losers, and he will stop at nothing to rescue us.